AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for July 1st, 2014. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today I'm joined by Jim Clausing online, and uh, how are you, Jim? Doing well. Been busy with forensics investigations and getting ready for the holiday. All right, good for you. Uh, joined here in the uh, in our lounge studio, whatever you want to call it, uh, with John Hogaboom and uh, John, preparing for the holiday as well? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we, and we've got some interesting activity coming in the following week, which maybe we'll discuss on next week's program, but All right. hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully not. <laughs> okay, good. And uh, also joined by Matt Kaiser here. And how are things going with you, Matt? Oh, I'm keeping busy. Keeping you better busy. believe it. Yep. We're all keeping busy. We're a relatively small team and a big company here, so we always have something to do and uh, always are interested in sharing with you. I'm Brian Rexrode, and uh, today what we're going to talk about first, I guess uh, we've seen some activity, um, well, we've been reporting on activity related to brute force attacks and RDP. We're going to yet do that again today when we talk about the internet weather, but uh, John, there was... Uh, something that came out from Kaspersky on this. Right, so Kaspersky released a report basically saying that they recently added into part of their tool set the ability to detect uh, remote desktop protocol brute force attacks, which a brute forces attack is when you know a specific IP address is repeatedly trying to password guess its way into a system. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they recently added this uh, into their tool set to detect it. Lo and behold, they discovered, wow, there's a lot of this going on, which mm -hmm. really isn't a surprise to us. We've kind of been reporting this uh, off and on for the past several years. Mm -hmm. We know that not only are there actors out there who are specifically um, trying to uh, get into remote desktop servers, uh, but there's other worms out there, like the Mordo worm is still out there mm -hmm. um, taking over machines. And it even has a very small list of usernames and passwords it uses, but you know, it's the law of you know, supply and demand. If there's enough of them out there, eventually you'll hit one of them that's got a weak password and get in. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I guess the interesting things or things that they noticed from their analysis, and maybe this is because Kaspersky is a Russian company, uh, that most of the activity that they saw was picked up from Russia and the United States. Mm. I think uh, there was one, I think it was Turkey maybe, somewhere around there, uh, was right. like the next highest. And then some of the other European countries kind of filled out the rest, but in the large part, you know, US and uh, Russia accounted for most of the brute force RDP type activity they mm -hmm. saw. I took a quick slide uh, to look at our activity, and you might have one as well. I don't know if you did this for our weather report, but it kind of shows, this is a, a two-year scan, so this is a pretty long term. And like I said, we've been talking that for many years that RDP has been scanned continuously. Um, and this is the number of scans. So we're seeing around between two to 3,000 on a daily basis, uh, regular scanning. There was a noticeable dip, which I, ba I backtracked that to pretty recently, um, you know, 514, 2014, yeah, so it was about a month and a half ago. I didn't get a chance to figure out why that was, why that significant dip. It actually decreased by maybe a, a two-thirds or so. It's about a third mm -hmm. of what it actually used to be, um, but I'm not sure why that is. Right. I wouldn't rest on your laurels. Uh, I would still protect <laughs> all my RDP machines 
or probably not have them on the internet if I could avoid it, or certainly block or filter access to them, because uh, mm -hmm. you know that type of stuff is uh, devices you don't want people to get into. Yeah, I uh, think it's reasonable to point out here as well that you're looking at scanned sources here, which sure. is not necessarily an indicator of how many probes that you might get. And once they find an accessible RDP server, it does not indicate how many times you're going to actually try to hit that that device. Although the the number of source addresses does have some kind of a bearing on how well they can hide the fact that it's the same actor coming in perhaps multiple times. What you want a system to do is, after a few guesses, lock them out. Mm -hmm. Well, they're going to generally be locked out by IP address. If they've been locked out by IP address and come back you know, with another of maybe a, a few thousand in their repertoire, they can get an awful lot of guesses in before they're actually locked out. Right, right. So uh, that's one of the threats associated with these botnets performing these brute force attacks is that it gives them an awful lot of opportunity to do things. And they could be even hitting the same server in parallel. And I think from what I understand or what I remember, RDP by default does not have any kind of uh, back off kind of thing or, you know, mm -hmm. after a certain number of invalid attempts, it doesn't really stop you. So they can kind of keep going on and on. Right. So you have uh, to trying. do something in front of it and to, right, right. to protect it. So, you know, long story short, we say this all the time, filter access to your RDP servers, use strong mm -hmm. passwords. Most of these are using, you know, uh, password lists that are relatively simple to guess and that's where they have the most success. So the more complex your password is, the better and uh, certainly filtering access to only the people who need to access that you know, device is the way to go. Absolutely. And it, it's a little difficult to see on this graph, but we had observed earlier that the amount of drop that you observed on May 15th or May 14th mm -hmm. was right around the same amount of drop. We saw a little bit of a hole in activity back in right around the beginning of November, late yeah, October. right around November. You can kind of, of see that sliver in there still, right. but it's a little bit harder when I got the two-year chart up. What that suggests to me is it's basically one actor set that's associated with that particular set of activity. That's a reasonable proportion of the activity is a, a, a particular actor set, a botnet, perhaps they lost command and control, the system's down for a little while, they're working on recovering it. In this case, since it's persisted for a little bit, perhaps maybe there was some kind of a takedown or something that we're not acutely aware of at the moment, or maybe they've gone on, uh, you know, off to look for something else. Right, right. All right, good deal. I understand Microsoft has uh, taken an action to uh, get a little bit of a handle on some of the activity we've been seeing with dynamic DNS. Can you tell us a little more about it, Matt? Yep. So um, this is actually kind of interesting. We we found out about it a little bit earlier than, than most people because we were looking at DNS queries mm -hmm. um, related to dynamic DNS domains. And things started resolving very strangely as of about midday yesterday to a bunch of IPs that had host names that were owned by Microsoft. Hmm. So it turns out that Microsoft took action against two particular types of malware. Uh, they call them Bindi and Jenkscus, and it took me forever to memorize those names. <laughs> but we know them better as NJRAT and NJWorm. So what they did is they, they, only, they filed suit against uh, two of the purported actors behind the malware, as well as taking action and, and seizing domains owned by noip.org. Now, noip.org is a very well-known dynamic domain provider. You know, it's mm -hmm. free for most people. They have a paid service as well, but most people take advantage of the free domains. You sign up mm -hmm. for them. Maybe there's a client, and you, you tell it what your IP address is, and the domain will resolve to you until you change it. Right. Uh, unfortunately, it's also, as most dynamic DNS free services are, you know, rife of, with abuse. Um, malware authors use it all the time. In particular, NJRAT and NJWorm, we're using it for command and control. 
The upshot of the takeover of the domains, however, is that not only were the domains in particular that were identified as being part of NJRAT and NJWorm user use, not only were they taken over, but the entire, I think it was a list of 22 domains that was own, were owned, everything under those was repointed to Microsoft. And it seems like it's, the majority is being dropped on the floor. Mm -hmm. It's not resolving. I had heard that the intent originally was that they would be you know, filtering out the known malicious traffic and passing the rest on as a complete you know, transparent redirect. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't seem to be the case, and there are some people on the internet, um, and when I say some, I, I, it might be in the millions, right, just, right. just some. Yeah, there's, so, the, so the, I mean, there's obviously, it, it appears to be some collateral impact associated with this, uh, yes. this takedown activity, but uh, at the same time, you know, we have seen an awful lot of cases where dynamic DNS services, a lot of these free services are being run in a way that, you know, perhaps not as, with as much scrutiny as necessary to really keep from being abused or malicious activity being, you know, taking place. And in fact, we've seen in, uh, in some cases where it appears that hosting services, for example, are willing to accept things without really paying any attention to really what's going on. And so there, there's a balance here that needs right. to take place. And, uh, you know, and this, this is a case where apparently there are some consequences to the, uh, to the attempt to clean things up. And uh, hopefully they'll get those things resolved. But perhaps on the other side of this is sending a message to these free service providers that they really need to be paying attention to what they're doing and making sure that uh, their, their services aren't being abused. Yeah, the fact of the matter is that dynamic DNS is heavily used by a number of threat actors, not just the ones involved with this particular malware activity, but mm -hmm. we've seen it all over the place. We've seen it heavily used in APT as well. Yeah. Right, absolutely. Um, and it actually did uh, interfere with about 25% uh, of the activity that was disrupted was APT oriented. Right. Other APT, not to say that, you know, NJRAT and NJWorm have some APT underpinnings, mm -hmm. uh, but there's a lot of other things hanging out in the noip.com space right. that were APT as well. Other APT groups mm -hmm. kind of hang out in there that were collaterally impacted by this. Not to say that that's a bad thing, um, it's just uh, an observation as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, this is only sort of peripherally related, but there was a uh, there was actually a study done by the the government accounting office. I don't know why they in particular picked this out, but uh, this was several years ago where they were looking at the registry information or registration information associated with domain names, and found that about thirty percent of them had bogus information. That is completely, you know, uh, you know, phone numbers that didn't make any sense, addresses that aren't real, uh, names that didn't exist no contact information that was valid, you know, email addresses that don't work. And so, uh, you know, some of that would be erroneous, and that is it was just simply a mistake. But a good proportion of that is they didn't, you know, there isn't really any scrutiny associated with this. So I think this fits in that sort of that same category that is really DNS, domain names, really are a significant underpinning in terms of translating, you know, to IP addresses and the abuses of those can have implications in terms of security of systems because we're using that as a as a means for that translation. So uh, I think the message, the underlying message here is that it is important to have good security around DNS, whether it be a dynamic DNS service, whether it be a free service or a paid service, we still need to be paying attention to it. I agree 100%. It's, uh, we've seen a lot of these actors taking advantage of it. You know, there are legitimate uses for it too that in this case, you know, or collateral damage. And they aren't the only ones. You 
know, there's plenty of oh, other yeah, dynamic the, DNS providers out yeah. there. So uh, this is, in, in my opinion, this is one example of a number that uh, are potentially contributing. In fact, it, it, it appears that even some of them might be hosted for the specific purpose of being able to facilitate some of the malicious activities that we've seen, and unfortunately not necessarily in a position where, um, uh, you know, U.S. legal action would be even be able to be taken against those. But, um, you know, you take action where you can. Next slide over here, we, you know, we talked a little bit about APT, mm -hmm. and uh, John, I guess uh, you found some information that uh, maybe you can tell us a little about. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, Semantic uh, was reporting on this particular story uh, about a threat called Dragonfly slash Energetic Bear, mm -hmm. uh, APT group. And uh, it's an interesting one. We've kind of talked about APT actors before uh, a lot on the program. Most of them with respect to theft of intellectual property, espionage activity, mm -hmm. uh, intelligence gathering types of operations. This one was for the most part targeting different types of uh, infrastructure. If you, if you take a look at the types of things that they were targeting here, they're targeting, well defense and aviation is one that we see all the time, but more so lately they were targeting energy grid operators, electricity, electricity generation, petroleum pipelines, uh, and energy industrial control systems. That's the thing that really troubles me, mostly in US and Europe. It has a lot of similarities in some ways to Stuxnet with the ICS, uh, industrial control systems, mm -hmm. um, but probably not the same actor set here, I don't think. The tactics that they were using, very similar to what we've seen before. They spearfish uh, the targets that they want to get access to and mm -hmm. then try to interrogate their machines to figure out what kinds of systems they have uh, access to what right. types of devices are they connected to that might be an industrial control system or software on there, mm -hmm. uh, things of that nature. They also saw them using watering hole attacks, which is not uncommon for APT groups, right. where they you know have a watering hole for a site that these users might go to that might be energy related mm -hmm. or whatever in their business that they're part of. And then when they get there, it redirects them to an exploit kit, uh, which we see a lot with even tr traditional malware. Mm -hmm. But we've seen that a little bit more with APT, where they're using exploit kits as a means to get a, an infection to drop on there, and then they might you know, upgrade that infection to something a little bit more uh, useful uh, mm -hmm. for their purposes. The one really interesting thing about this one is that they were trojanize, trojanizing legitimate software for uh, three uh, vendors of ICS software. Hmm. Uh, so they were actually uh, able to uh, trojanize version of software up on various sites for these, these three particular manufacturers uh, so that they could kind of get uh, into the systems in that way. So they were able to actually get into the legitimate download sites associated with these vendors? Is From what I understand, they... yeah. Um, so that's pretty interesting that they were able to do that. Um, they're also thinking that, well, they're pretty sure this is coming out of Russia. They don't know if it's a state-sponsored activity. There's mm -hmm. speculation about that. Um, the, the other uh, couple of uh, artifacts here is that they use the Havix rat, uh, which is a rat that um, I don't know if we've talked about on the show before, but uh, it's been around for a while. It's another remote administration toolkit. Mm -hmm. And uh, it also goes by the name Backdoor Old Drea. And uh, there's another uh, tool that They'll also deploy maybe after Havex rack called Carag Caragony, mm -hmm. uh, which also allows you to collect intelligence on the machine. It's a kind of a wrap, but it's more of an intelligence gathering type of thing. And their C2 infrastructure, very much like what we've seen before, compromised servers, mostly web servers, some of those popular blogging types of software that mm -hmm. you can get and deploy on your web server. Uh, they've found compromises for those and they've you know uh, used them as part of that. 
I did put up a slide here with some mitigation strategies. We talk about this all the time. The first thing I say, don't assign users uh, local admin privileges, which we talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. You know, have them log in as an unprivileged user if you can, because if, the, if they can compromise the machine uh, and have local admin privileges, it's really easy to escalate and start doing right. some domain level type yeah, things. It's, a, it's a one point. of the layers of security. First right. you control access to the system, and then within the system you control access to you know, aspects of the system, and it's all beyond that. So it's, you know, we should be working on layers of security in, in any of our security strategies. Right, and if you can't, if for some reason you can't restrict the local admin rights, um, uh, at least have the browser run, run with some very least privileges. Because mm -hmm. most of the, you know, as we mentioned, the watering hole techs, they use exploit kits through the browser, try to you know, compromise the machine. So the least privilege that the browser can have, the less likely it'll be to, uh, able to infect the machine. Mm -hmm. And then really, it, in my opinion, the three important things here out of this slide is education. Educate your users on safe browsing habits. Educate them on how to open email safely. Mm -hmm. You know, don't open attachments or click on URLs from unknown sources when you get an email. Uh, think before you click or open. And also, you know, educate your users just in general on social engineering and uh, phishing techniques that are going around. Because, you know, there's other types of techniques, not necessarily with APT, but we talked about phone ones too, where people call you on the phone and say, oh, there's a problem with your machine. We detected there's, you know, uh, some kind of problem where they try to steer you to, to browse to a website and then they can take control of your machine that way too. Um, so there's a couple other Yeah, I'd stick, a, I'd stick one in there. If you do find something that's suspicious, make sure you report it to folks in your organization that can assess whether others have received something similar because right. it, you know, oftentimes it is spear phishing, but they are still generally sending to more than one individual. There may be two or three, but uh, the opportunity to know that there's something suspect out there and investigate whether others have gotten it, uh, investigate whether it uh, has, has shown up and you know it has actually been followed out into uh, to or, or could have infected machines, is a very valuable valuable tip for security analysts like ourselves right. in investigating events like this. Absolutely. Um, and I, I guess the, you know, just to sum it all up, the reason this one maybe is a little bit more important than some other ones is they're kind of focused on industrial control systems, specifically in the energy sector. Mm -hmm. And um, that, lend, while they haven't seen any type of, you know, bad behavior here, um, beyond the espionage aspects, there's a lot of potential for sabotage there. Yeah, and we don't know what the motivation is. Um, but uh, so that's one to kind of keep an eye on. And if you are in the energy sector, I would definitely mm -hmm. take a look at some of these reports. Uh, we have a couple of links that, we, that we'll have uh, on, the on the show here. And there's one uh, from Trend Micro, I believe it was, that actually has a really good analysis of uh, some of this stuff. So mm -hmm. one other thing I'd suggest, especially with the industrial control systems, is that they need to be you know, isolated from from the rest of your network. You don't want normal browsing from those. You don't want, uh, to, to the extent possible, you don't want folks to be able to reach them from their desktops, even on the corporate network. You know, these are, these are sensitive assets and they need to be protected as such. Yep, good point, Jim. And uh, I think we've probably talked about a similar topic related to point of sale systems in the past. That would be another example of that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I think it, more generally, you know, we've we spent a lot of time talking about criminal activities, a little bit about APT. And as you pointed out earlier, John, it tends to have been traditionally thought about in terms of technology theft, mm -hmm. uh, intellectual property theft, that type of thing. But it is reasonable to expect that, you know, this, as much as we like to think about 
the world getting smaller and being global, there are still countries with interest in protecting themselves, and you can expect that they're going to be investigating ways to help protect themselves, and one way is to have an upper hand, the opportunity to be able to do sabotage in other countries if they, if they were to uh, take some type of military action against them, or at least use it, at the very least, use it as a, uh, a, a diplomatic hammer. Bargaining <laughs> is there chip. such thing as a dip <laughs> diplomatic hammer? Is that an oxymoron? But the, the point being is that we can expect that that sort of thing is going to take place. So for anybody that's managing systems that have uh, critical infrastructure roles, and I know we think of ourselves in that role as well, we need to be paying attention to uh, what types of things might be taking place, even though they have not been sort of mainstream, what, what things might be taking place to try to uh, gain control of systems or be able to manip manipulate systems in ways that uh, certainly might not have a good uh, monetary motivation, but might have a political motivation behind it. Right, right. So let's, uh, let's see, shift over to uh, Jim here. And uh, Jim, you were going to tell us about how bugs don't go away. <laughs> yeah, Brian, this, this one, uh, came to our attention the, uh, via the Security Mouse blog. LZO, Compression Algorithm, Lempelziv, Oberhumor. It's been around since 1994. It's one of the most efficient compression algorithms out there, used in a lot of, a lot of software. And it turns out that there's a, a rather subtle buffer overflow type bug in there that uh, has gone unnoticed until just recently. Mm. It's a really subtle bug. You know, folks didn't notice it, uh, and it was in the initial uh, reference implementation of the algorithm. So a lot of other folks have, even though even though they've re-implemented you know their own version of the algorithm, it's ba most of it is based on that same initial reference Im implementation. So a lot of them ended up copying the same bug into their implementations. Mm -hmm. Not going to go into a lot of detail. You can read the read the blog post to get some more detail on on exactly what happened. But since this LZO library is incorporated in lots of other software, each implementation of it needs to be fixed to correct their their issues. It could potentially have a fairly large impact. In some implementations, uh, it's possible to do remote code execution. Mm -hmm via this this buffer overflow um, in most it's possible to do a denial of service in most 64-bit architectures it's impractical to to actually do it um, just because of the of the size of the buffer that they have to overflow there but it's you know it, like I said it's it's a tricky one it's a subtle one and so, if people weren't, uh, a lot of people weren't reading the code, it it's one that has hung around for 20 years until somebody new happened to to look at the code with fresh eyes and and noticed there was an issue there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, you know, I think fundamentally this is a this is a case where it, a, a good example where a bug, subtle or not, a bug can sit around for a significant period of time, and I think that's one of the reasons we have zero days that occur is that you can have bugs that are latent in systems and uh, if somebody is able to to accumulate uh, knowledge of these vulnerabilities and you know in a malicious sense and uh, develop exploits against those uh, that's where our zero days are coming from so uh, and I think uh, sort of another uh, subtlety that's um, 
that, that's associated with this is that um, I, personally, I'm much of, more of an advocate of looking at it at protecting systems from a threat point of view as opposed to focusing on trying to protect against vulnerabilities because this is a case where the vulnerability may be there, it may have been around for a very long time, there's little that you can do about it if you don't know about it, there's no patch available. Whereas if you look at what motivations might exist to attack your systems, the methods that might be used to attack your systems, uh, not specifically the exploit, but the behaviors and the activities associated with those, uh, I think you have a much better opportunity to actually protect those systems in a reasonable way. We also talked a little bit about layers of security earlier as well. So you want to try to uh, not expose this type of a bug in the first place and uh, be able to protect your systems without depending on one layer of security to do that. So. There are patches available for this now, mm -hmm. um, and I, for the you know, the reference implementation. So the, all of the vendors I'm sure will be updating their, uh, their libraries and their software. And I'm sure you'll see, you know, new packages, new versions of a lot of the vulnerable software coming out all right. soon. All right. Thanks, Jim. Uh, and so let's go to, I guess, is this a good news story here, Matt? We've got a Oh, I think it's very good, actually. <laughs> I was very excited. All right, well, tell us. So, so uh, Virus Bulletin has been around for 25 years. And if you haven't heard of them, they, they publish a, uh, a bulletin. It's, it's somewhere between a malware analysis paper mm -hmm. and, and other articles relating to security. And for a long time, it was, it was a paid-only subscription. And as of, I think, today, of, of today where we're taping, it's completely free. Um, they're going to stop publishing a, a paper version of it, and it's going to be internet only. Uh, I, I assume that means ad-supported. And uh, you won't even have to sign up for an account. You can just browse, and all of the back issues are there. And I mm -hmm. think that's going to be where I'm going to be spending my 4th of July weekend, is reading <laughs> up on the old uh, back issues of, of Virus Bulletin. Right. So I, I think it's great if anyone's out there who wants to learn more about it and pick up some very well-written articles. That's the place. Yeah, absolutely. It, this is actually, I think, very good news. Now, there, it was a subscri subscription-based service previously, and uh, like you said, you, you presume that they're going to an ad-based um, ad-based model, so they'll be advertising that's, uh, that's facilitating the, the monetization of that. So th they do have an intent to continue with yeah, new articles as well. Publishing articles instead of on a, a, a Bolton-wise basis that'll be practically any time that they come out, like mm -hmm. a, a pretty much a blog format at this point. So that would help in terms of the dynamics that are necessary to be able to, uh, you know, keep up with the amount mm -hmm. of new developments right. that are taking place these days as well. Exactly. Right. All right, very good. So it's always nice to have some good news and uh, hopefully we have, uh, well, at least not some bad news associated with internet weather for this, uh, this week. Uh, but we certainly have uh, continuing activity that we'd like to share with you here. Uh, first of all, this is uh, packets, actually bytes and packets associated with port 161 UDP. This is actually source port 161 UDP. Uh, that's SNMP, Simple Network Management Protocol, as we've been reporting over and over again. This is one of many UDP-based protocols that can be used for reflection attack activity, that is uh, denial service attacks by reflecting off of these servers. We are continuing to see the activity. I think the trend here is that we're seeing more density, that is more cases of attacks that are using SNMP, 
but they're still not what I would describe as, you know, really big attacks. Looking at it from a telecommunications carrier's point of view. Yeah. Uh, if you're the victim of one of these attacks, they could be actually quite big. So they're up in the orders of uh, hundreds of megabits per second. And uh, like I said, more density of this sort of attack taking place. So uh, I think fundamentally, uh, regardless of this port or others, uh, if you have any uh, uh, need to keep your service up and operating, you want to make sure that you have uh, prepared a, a DDoS defense strategy or a service provider that can help you with that. Next item here, an anomaly we identified associated with scan probes on port 27016 UDP. This one appears to be innocuous, and I think, uh, Matt, you reported on this last week, is that correct? Uh, I you, noticed it last week, I don't think I reported on it. Okay, so we, you know, I like to I like to report some things that are anomalies, but yet are not security issues. So this was a this was one case here. It did show up on the on the radar. This this is associated with gaming service activity. You know, this time of year, you'd expect kids are getting out of school. Good time to release some new games and uh, and capture their interest. They're probably enjoying the air conditioning and the uh, the gaming at this point. So this is actually uh, appears to be innocuous activity. But if you do see this on your enterprise, obviously you want to be considering whether it's gaming activity or something else that's uh, that's taking place and if that's within your policy. I think yes, the, uh, the Steam summer sale might be responsible for a good amount of that traffic as well. A whole bunch of games went on sale and uh, I know myself and a couple other analysts, um, we, we bought a few games. Oh, so you're going to be sharing time between reading Virus Bulletin and, and playing some games. <laughs> All right, I'll games. admit it. <laughs> okay. And, uh, okay, next item here is scan sources and probes on port 8081 TCP. And I happen to be showing scan sources here because I thought it was the uh, sort of the most interesting to take a look at. And this is a case here where we obviously have some mechanized activity that is, uh, it appears to be basically daily probing activity with some space in between. There are some exceptions to that. And most of the probes here, as well as the sources, are from China. There are some from US as well as Poland. This is not a case where the vast majority of the probes are from China. This is a case where most of the sources are from China and uh, it's sort of competing with the, uh, the other probing activity that's taking place. But nevertheless, uh, probing activity on port 8081 TCP, which is, a, I think, an alternate port or used often for proxy port, right? Right. There's a lot of other web services that use that as a port mm -hmm. as well. Right. As like an alternate web service, yeah. Next one here is scan probes on port 53 TCP. This is associated with DNS as well as, uh, as port 53 UDP, but we typically see more of the activity on UDP associated with DNS. This one, TCP is generally used for uh, zone transfers, and we have seen some indications perhaps, uh, had some discussions where perhaps there's somebody that's going around probing and trying to do zone transfers. I suspect it's more of a you know, sort of survey the internet kind of thing or get a mapping of the internet type of activity that's taking place. Uh, normally you'd want zone transfers to be restricted on DNS servers, uh, but I'm sure that there are plenty of them out there that haven't been restricted. And one of the consequences here is that intentional or not, it could load down the server trying to do these zone transfers when you're expecting you know, a query here and there, and all of a sudden you're asking, it, uh, have a system asking for everything that the DNS server knows. Right. Next item here is uh, scan probes on port 623 UDP. And this is associated with ASF RMCP. And to translate that, that's uh, basically the Alert Standards Format Remote Management and Control Protocol. And basically, this is a protocol that's used to manage PCs 
regardless of the state of the operating system. So you're not dependent on the, op the system being booted. It gives you some capability to go in and manage the system, perhaps tell it to boot, some things uh, of that sort. I included a reference here, which is a document. Just uh, I just happened to pick this up from uh, searching around on uh, what this protocol is about. Uh, this happens to be an HP document for how to use that protocol in managing HP computers, but uh, there are lots of other manufacturers that have similar capabilities. Now, what's interesting here is the same sources that are probing this port, and this is relatively new activity. I'm showing 60 days of activity here, so it's uh, basically been going on the last few weeks or so. But the same sources that are probing this one are also probing on port 123 UDP, uh, 161 UDP, and 1900 UDP, all of which we have discussed previously associated with potential ports for use in uh, DDoS attacks, that is reflection type DDoS attacks, so having amplification value associated with that. Certainly NTP, 123 UDP, right. was well used earlier in the year for uh, reflection DDoS activity. Right. So there, there, now this activity, most of what we've seen here so far has been associated with a sort of a trusted and known security researching organization. And so I, I consider this to be somewhat or mostly innocuous at this point, but there are certainly is possibility for others they would be searching for the same type of capability. Uh, I'm not sure at this point how successful the, the whether you know lots of these have been exposed or accessible, but um, there are two potential consequences. One is use of this port for DDoS attack activity. The second one will be potentially to be able to uh, get unauthorized access to computers that have this uh, capability exposed. We've talked several times right. in the last few months about the, uh, the potential for port 1900, but we hadn't actually seen any attacks on that. And mm -hmm. so I, I guess it's now time to look at, at this protocol and see what the reflection capabilities are there, uh, even though we haven't seen any attacks on it yet. Yeah, I think you're right, Jim. I actually have a, maybe I'll present something on that. You can reflect quite a bit with 1900 <laughs> UDP. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that we want to advertise that, but it is possible. I have some proof case samples of how to do that. Okay. All right, next item here, uh, top 10 most probe ports. And uh, at the top of the list here, we see port 22 TCP. No surprise there. We see 135 TCP. And again, this one's uh, still ranking second. I think, Matt, I think you last week reported that there was a drop in that activity. We're going to take a look at that again and show uh, where basically where it stands at this point. 1433 TCP, uh, that's uh, Microsoft SQL database. 445 TCP, of course, we still have those config infections out there. 3389 TCP, we talked about that with the remote desktop protocol. Already got a chance to take a look at the last two years of activity and probing on that one. Next here, uh, fit port 53 UDP, obviously looking for those DNS servers that could potentially be used for, uh, uh, for reflection attacks. Port 80 TCP. 5900 TCP, we haven't seen that one in a little while, kind of came back here, it's uh, associated with VNC, again, a remote desktop protocol capability, and then last but not least, 8080 TCP. Now, again, as I said, uh, taking a look at the scan probes on port 135 TCP here, you can see what's been happening over the last 60 days. One of the theories was that there was a particular ID that was being checked for, yeah. and they were basically scanning the whole internet to see if that ID existed on any of the computers that were exposed. It but was strange. We saw some, we looked at some of the packets related to this and couldn't really, I don't know if, I don't know if we know exactly what they were right. looking for, but they were trying to administratively connect 
with a particular set of credentials, which would be surprising that you'd randomly happen across yeah, a machine it, that would accept those credentials. Be, it didn't appear to be a legitimate activity by, no. at the very least. So uh, this sort of activity is certainly still taking place. I think when you reported it last week, Matt, there was a sort of a lull in the activity. Uh, it's still there at a lower level than we had seen previously, about half as, half as many probes, but uh, still a significant number on an hourly basis. Looking at the top 10 most sources doing the probing, uh, we have at the top of the list, and actually this one jumped up significantly since uh, last week, port 443 TCP. And uh, we're gonna take a little closer look at that in a few moments here. Next is port 445 TCP, followed by 23 TCP, which is, again, no surprises there. Port 80 TCP, 8080 TCP, and then um, we talked a little bit about uh, 27016, 27015 is on here as well. Also 3128 TCP, which is also a uh, often used as a gaming port. Uh, proxy, actually. Uh, proxy? Yeah, Squid Proxy, 3128. Squid Proxy, that's right. Um, I think it's it does have some gaming association as well, but I think you're, you're probably correct in the in the sense that it's associated with Squid Proxy. Taking a look at the scan sources on port 443 TCP, this is HTTPS, and I, uh, this is actually showing, I think, 60 days of activity here. And the significance here is that we talked about this when this activity was up back in the April timeframe, continuing into May, and uh, we had identified that most of the sources that are doing this probing activity, and this is up around 9,000 sources at the peak here, what this appears to be is some sort of a scanning activity to recruit uh, devices into a botnet, and you can see the growth of the botnet size as we, uh, as we progress here. And as I said, it appeared to me some sort of a systemic problem out of Argentina, yeah. uh, where a lot of devices were being recruited in that botnet. It stopped. We're not sure why it stopped. Perhaps command control was taken down or something along those lines, or perhaps it was diverted to do something else. Uh, but does not appear that that botnet has gone away. In fact, it seems to be the same, at least originating from the same place, uh, the same sort of sources that are participating in this scanning activity, except in this case, there was no ramp up. So it suggests that the botnet was basically healthy, perhaps idle, perhaps doing something else, and uh, is uh, still going strong. It's interesting the way that you've got that curve starting, you know, earlier on in the graph. Um, I would almost extrapolate almost like to say, you connect it, right? right, you could connect those and say the botnet's right. been there the whole time, it's even been growing at the same rate, potentially, and then it just got switched back on. Yeah, that's a good yeah, possibility as well. Absolutely. Okay, so that's our show for today. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at threattrack at list.att.com. Um, and uh, if you'd like to get notice of new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter. It's at ThreatTrack. The ThreatTrack video is available on att.com slash ThreatTrack. That's the ATT Tech Channel. It's also available on YouTube at the ATT Tech Channel within YouTube. Uh, there's also an audio-only version available on iTunes. Uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you, John. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, Jim. Wish you well over the uh, over the. the Fourth of July holiday here. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And until then, <laughs> keep your network safe. The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.